WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. And now we turn to our climate story of the week, which we do every Tuesday on the show. Tens of billions of cows, pigs, and chickens are raised and slaughtered each year for food globally. What makes this a climate story? Well, their burps, manure, and the fertilizer used to grow their feed account for somewhere around 11% of global greenhouse emissions, according to the United Nations. Other studies say it's really more like 19%. We'll get into why those different numbers in a bit. Shifting to a more plant-based diet could mitigate some of the impacts of the climate crisis, as many of you know. In July, Oxford University published new research that showed that people who follow a plant-based diet account for 75% less in greenhouse gas emissions than those who eat more than three and a half ounces of meat a day. A vegan diet in particular results in what Oxford calls significantly less harm to land, water, and biodiversity. But for many Americans, the thought of going vegetarian or all the way to vegan might seem impossible, might be impossible. While Gallup reports one in four Americans want to cut back on meat, only 5% of adults are vegetarian or vegan, and most give up their diets at some point. Joining us now to discuss how meat agriculture impacts the climate and to explain how to incorporate this information into our lives in a sustainable and doable way is Kenny Torella, staff writer for Vox's Future Perfect section with a focus on animal welfare and the future of meat. He's also the author of Meat Slash Less, so it's meatless with a slash between the two words, Meat Slash Less, which is a Vox newsletter designed to help readers incorporate more plant-based food into their diets. Kenny, thanks for coming on. Welcome to WNYC. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. And the estimates vary, as I noted, but what's the best number that you have for what percentage of global climate warming emissions is caused by animal agriculture? Right. So give or take around 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions stem from the meat, dairy, and eggs that we eat. As you mentioned, uh, some figures put it closer to 11%, some put it closer to 20%. But regardless of which model we use, there's no doubt that animal agriculture is one of the largest drivers of climate change. Um, Why is it so hard to measure the impact of agriculture on the climate? I mean, we're talking about one estimate, like 20%, that's double the estimate of the other from a credible source, which is around 10%. Yeah, so it varies widely because, well, for one, in the United States, we're not really monitoring emissions from agriculture. Agriculture 
um, is exempt from some of the key air quality monitoring mon monitoring laws federally. Um, also, there is the issue that you know farming depends on a on a variety of factors, and so do the emissions. So it depends on what you feed an animal, depends on uh, the weather, how they're raised. And so a lot of the estimates that we get are simply models. And you know, so, so the total figure that comes out at the end can be different. Um, and so one thing I'd point out too is that I believe the United Nations uh, figure, which is at 11%, um, I believe it's not been peer re reviewed yet. And some climate scientists are skeptical about that figure because it's much lower than the 14 and a half percent that the UN cited several years ago, and huh. meat and dairy production have increased pretty significantly since. And, huh. and uh, one of the main reasons why there could be a discrepancy is that it could be the case that they're underemphasizing methane, um, which come from primarily from cattle and uh, dairy cows. This is maybe a tangent, but do you know why dairy production would be significantly increasing these days? Um, well, just in general, uh, globally, as countries, you know, climb out of poverty and their economies grow, people tend to consume more meat and dairy. Um, and even in the United States, while consumption of fluid milk is going down, um, we're actually seeing an increase in consumption of dairy-based products like yogurt and cheese. Interesting. All right. So here's another uh, another number from your reporting that's going to blow some people's minds. In October, you wrote about how, quote, almost half of the continental U.S. is used for meat production. What? Where is all that land? <laughs> that's right. So you can kind of think of it as a few buckets. So um, one bucket is that, you know, the the Midwest and it is really blanketed in corn and soy. And a lot of that corn and soy doesn't go to feed us. It goes to feed uh, livestock, so chickens, pigs, cows, and even fish who are farmed. Um, so much of the U.S. is devoted to, to growing food to feed the animals we then eat. But there are also large swaths of the United States, especially in the West, that are devoted to cattle grazing. Um, so you have large plots of, of public land that are loaned out to cattle ranchers at really low rates so their cattle can graze. And it can, you know, in that process, the cattle can trample on vegetation um, and pollute rivers and streams. And you mentioned soy and corn. And yeah, a lot of listeners probably do know that, but maybe a lot also don't realize that even though those are you know, obviously uh, plants um, that they're being raised to feed the cows um, for uh, the eventual goal of meat production. And I even heard um, on NPR recently how the Great Salt Lake in Utah is on the brink of collapse. And in the reporting, they cited alfalfa farming as the cause. And alfalfa has to do with meat production, doesn't it? It does, yeah. It's a primary feed crop for beef cattle and and for dairy cows. Um, and you know, this one figure really blew my mind during my reporting. I read that sixty eight percent of the available water in Utah is going to just grow alfalfa for livestock feed, 
but it's less than 1% of the state's income. And so, you know, that led me to, to write a headline saying that we're essentially draining the Colorado River for meat and dairy production. So listeners, who has a question for our guest, Kenny Torella from Vox, uh, who writes their meat slash less newsletter? How do you say it when you say it? Do you just say meatless? Oh, I say meat and then I pause for a moment and say less. So meat, less. So this could be for those of you who tried to eat less meat and had trouble with it because that's the personal side of this as we talk about the impact of meat on the climate, 212-433-WNYC on our Climate Story of the Week, which we do every Tuesday, 212-433-9692 with your stories of trying to go vegetarian or vegan or your questions about um, methane and other emissions that are um, coming directly or indirectly from from uh, meat production, 212-433-WNYC, or any of the politics involved, which we're about to get to, 212-433-9692, call or text. And, you know, this is also a political story, as these things always are. You write, meat giant Tyson Foods spends a much bigger share of its revenue than ExxonMobil lobbying Congress to stop climate policy. Tell us about that. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, we we may often think of, you know, the tobacco lobby in uh, in its heyday or today, the oil and gas lobby is some of the most powerful forces in Washington. And they certainly are. But um, right up there with them is uh, the meat industry and, and their lobbies. Um, and we've seen that over the last decade, the meat lobby has become increasingly concerned about its climate and environmental impact and is trying to get ahead of um, regulation as we're you know now seeing oil and gas being being further regulated. Um, so from the meat and dairy sector, we've seen a ratcheting up of what I would consider greenwashing. You know, they're using a similar playbook as big oil did in the early 2000s of really downplaying their emissions and, and pollution and saying that, you know, look, we'll make tweaks here and there to clean up the industry and then everything will be fine. We don't need to be regulated. We can just take voluntary measures to, to clean up the worst actors. Um, and one of the most recent and more startling examples of this actually comes from Tyson Foods. They're the country's largest meat producer. So the company recently launched what it's calling climate-friendly beef. Um, you know, which is odd because beef is far and away the, the highest uh, carbon emitting food available. And when I asked Tyson, and also I, I asked the United States Department of Agriculture about what exactly makes Tyson's beef climate friendly, you know, if they could share data to prove this, Tyson said they would not open, open their um, environmental accounting ledger. And the USDA said, I would have to file a Freedom of Information Act request to learn more about, you know, how the USDA thought through approving this label. And it's not just the lobbyists. You write about how U.S. environmental groups haven't really addressed the issue. You think they haven't? Yeah, but by and large, the environmental movement has kind of shied away from going up against big ag. And I think there are a couple of legitimate reasons to that. Um, one being that ultimately 
you know, I think some groups feel like they need to stay focused on the energy sector, which is the largest source of emissions. Um, but I also think there's some some fear uh, around going up against big ag and saying we need to regulate meat that, you know, the U.S. and the global north should reduce its meat and dairy production and consumption, because that's not a politically popular message. People really like to eat meat um, and they you know want it cheap and fast. And so it's not very popular to say, look, we need to more heavily regulate this industry and we need to shift the American diet so it's not so lopsided towards meat. Listener texts this question. It says, every segment I've heard on this show about meat eaters and or vegetarian and uh, vegetarianism and veganism <clears throat> and the environment leaves out grass-fed beef or pasture-raised animals in general like chicken and pig. So can you please have the guest address pasture-raised, grass-fed, and finished meat and how that would change the meat industry's impact on our environment? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So one thing I'll, I'll point out is that the vast, vast majority of animals raised for food, um, about 99% are raised in, in so-called factory farms. And so the kind of pasture-raised, grass-fed, organic sector is very, very small. Um, that said, you know, there are some environmental benefits to raising animals um, outside of factory farms. And so um, if managed right, it can you know, potentially reduce pollution. And of course, animal welfare is higher on these farms, which is, is a major positive. Um, but there are also some drawbacks. So one of them is that you know, grass-fed beef or pasture-raised animals require more land. And the drawback of that is that if you require more land to produce the same amount of meat, then it has a higher carbon footprint, which can be kind of counterintuitive. Mm, mm -hmm. But scientists call this the carbon opportunity cost of meat. Mm. So, for example, let's say you have a patch of land. If you just let it be, let it you know, be wild, it can sequester large amounts of carbon. But if you convert it to use it for agriculture, you forego that opportunity to sequester carbon. Right. So I guess in the, some the, ways, the, the yeah. comparison comes down to um, how much in terms of emissions is saved because they're not using land to grow all that soy and corn and alfalfa to feed the, co feed the cows, um, right, versus whatever the cost is from using all that uh, pasture. Right. There, there was one analysis into just one farm. So this is not a representative example, but it found um, that this one for farm, I believe, in Georgia required that used you know, much more like organic and holistic farming practices um, was able to sequester carbon on its land. But it actually required two and a half times more land than a you know conventional right. factory operation. And so. Um, that's one thing I often raise in this issue is that agriculture is just full of trade-offs and you're really trying to balance a lot of factors at once. And it's it's not so simple as, say, just comparing solar energy to coal. Jason in Washington Heights, you're on WNYC. Hi, Jason. Yeah, hi. Thanks very much. Uh, just two quick questions. Uh, yeah, I started substituting avocado in my salad for chickens because as far as I know, avocados are not able to suffer. But now I... 
I mean, avocados, as I understand it, are grown in, you know, uh, not in the United States for the most part. Uh, so there, there's a lot of carbon footprint associated with raising avocados and transporting. So I wanted to ask your guest about those uh, calculations about the transporting of plant-based foods. And also, the other thing is, uh, you know, lab-grown meat, which I know sounds weird, but it's all cultivated meat. There's an organization called the Good Food Institute, which is funding a lot of uh, initiatives to develop, I think it's from stem cells or something, So, which may sound creepy, but there's nothing natural about slaughterhouses. So maybe someday the best thing for New Yorkers, if most of the food that we eat is grown in, you know, like in a lab in the Bronx or Queens. Uh, so just wondered if your guests wanted to comment on any of that. Jason, thanks for asking both parts of that question. And I, I will note, Kenny, that uh, the most common question that we're getting on the phones and a lot of text messages has to do with uh, the fake meat, you know, impossible burgers and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll go with the, the question around avocados versus chicken first. So um, I think, you know, it's a, it's a misunderstanding that local food is inherently more sustainable than food that comes from maybe the other side of the country or even an entirely different country. And that's because the transportation energy required to produce our food is just a tiny percent um, of a food's overall carbon footprint. Um, really, it's under 10%. So this is why I often tell people it matters much more what you're eating rather than where it came from. Um, so, you know, a, a burger, a, a veggie burger shipped halfway around the world is probably going to have a lower carbon footprint than a hamburger raised at, you know, a feedlot, um, you know, 50 miles from right. your home. And I should probably clarify at this point that an impossible burger, which I cited in my question, that's plant-based, right? So that's what you were mm -hmm. just talking about. That's different than lab-grown meats. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, as, as um, Jason mentioned, there is this kind of new, uh, whole brave new world uh, around the future of meat. And people are trying to figure out how to make lab-grown meat or what they call cell-cultivated meat, in which you take animal cells, you take a biopsy from an animal, and then you grow those cells, you feed them a mix of different nutrients. Um, and after several weeks, you can then harvest those cells. And, uh, you know, essentially, it's biologically identical to meat. However, right now, it's, the industry is still in its infancy. It's incredibly expensive to produce this stuff. Um, it, has been, it has received regulatory approval in the United States, but it's only being sold at two restaurants in very small quantities. And it's still an open question as to whether we'll ever be able to really economically scale cell-cultivated or, or lab-grown meat. Um, then there's this other second category of of the future of meat, which I, which is just plant-based meat. So the impossible burger, it's the beyond burger, which are really just better versions of the veggie burgers that, you know, listeners may have tried in the early two thousands, um, which are designed to taste more like meat than their predecessors. Um, and there was a bump, I would say in the late 2010s in which there was a lot of attention around these products, but in recent years, their sales, um, have declined. And it's, again, an open question as to whether consumers will really take up these products and embrace them. 
We have a few minutes left with Kenny Torella, staff writer for Vox's Future Perfect section with a focus on animal welfare and the future of meat. He's the author as well of the Meat Less Vox newsletter designed to help readers incorporate more plant-based foods into their diets. And we're doing this in the context of our climate story of the week. And Jen on line five, uh, Jen on line five, Jen is on line five, and she's in Randolph, New Jersey. You're on WNYC. Hi, Jen. Hi, thanks so much for taking my call. Um, I was just telling your screener that um, my husband and I went vegan um, over five years ago now, along with our daughter, um, after watching two documentaries. Um, so I wanted to recommend them perhaps to your readers on the health benefits of going vegan. Uh-huh. I'd always sort of, um, you know, been curious about it because I'm an animal lover and, but was taught in school growing up, you know, the food pyramid and that's what you need to be healthy. And um, the two documentaries we watched were the game changers and forks over knives. Um, we went vegan the day after watching them over five years ago and haven't looked back. <laughs> Is there a hardest part for you, for people, because part of the premise you know, of this segment in the first place is there are a lot of people who really would like to be more vegetarian or more vegan than they are, but they find it really daunting. So do you have any tips for converting or going, you know, whatever degree down that path? We started at first with um, a, 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 meal, a, a meal prep kit called Purple Carrot. Um, and I got a lot of um, great recipes through that. You know, we got um, delivery like three days a week, and it really taught me um, how to how to cook vegan um, with a lot of different variety of meals that they had. And, and so I've kind of gotten a lot of recipes from that, and that helped us, I think, with the transition. Thank you and very much. And also what? Restaurants. <laughs> also what? So many great restu- vegan, restu- vegan oh, restaurants. Oh, are out there now. Yeah. Plant to, plant to Queen, shout out to them. They're one of our favorites. Thank you very much. Uh, Another vegan, but more on the politics, Bill in Berkeley Heights. You're on WNYC. Hi, Bill. Yes, hi. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for doing this again. And and, uh, um, I've been vegan now for almost nine years. Um, uh, Like a previous caller, uh, I watched uh, those two game changers, Forks Over Knives, what really did it to me was uh, Earthlings, which is narrated by uh, Joaquin Phoenix. But getting back to um, trying to uh, provide this information to everyone out there in the world, I mean, it's a little-known secret. I mean, no one realizes what animal agriculture and the devastating effects it has on our planet, not to mention, of course, what's going on with um, global, um, uh, global warming. Uh, you know, it, it does more damage than uh, the fossil fuel industry. I mean, and I and I try to bring this up to my friends, and they go and continue to eat their burgers and steaks while I'm, you know, doing my plant-based thing. And honestly, it wasn't uh, just because, uh, you know, becoming healthier. It was really uh, a moral and ethical situation for me. And uh, mm-hmm. after watching Earthlings, that's that's mm-hmm. really what uh, did it for me. And, and, and you know, becoming a vegan, I just... Real quick, I, I don't know where we go uh, when we go up against the lobbyists. I mean, if if your guy can tell us how to go about, I mean, I've ri- I've you know I sign every um, uh, I sign off on all those yes, and and uh, still we're not getting anywhere. Yeah, anywhere. Bill, thank thank you. And and one other fact that we haven't mentioned yet, pertinent to the success of the lobbyists, is that agriculture is one of the most subsidized industries in the United States. 
According to one government website that we saw, in 2022, the federal government provided farms with more than $15 billion in subsidies. So what do you say to the caller, Kenny? Yeah, I think, you know, we go to the the grocery store and we see, you know, an abundance of meat, dairy and egg products and think, and, you know, and they're they're incredibly cheap, but those prices don't really reflect the, the true cost. And um, that's because for decades, agricultural policy um, has exempted farms uh, primarily from, you know, clean uh, clean water laws and clean air laws and also animal welfare laws. Um, and so the the price of meat and the abundance of meat has been you know shaped through food policy, through corporate policy. Um, and there's a lot we can do to reform it. So one, yes, we could reform subsidies um, so that they're shifted more towards uh, plant-based, more sustainable foods. Um, and I think there, there could be a lot more done to regulate factory farms for water pollution and air pollution. You know, farms are the leading source of water pollution in the United States. And most of that is coming from fertilizer runoff from the, the farms that grow corn and soy um, and also the animal manure itself. Um, and then there's also a lot that I think corporations can do to try to um, incentivize consumers to eat more plant-based foods, whether that's making their products, um, product lines feature more plant-based foods um, to make them taste better. So while a lot of times this conversation kind of falls on the individual to change their diet, there's so much that policymakers, elected officials, um, agencies, and corporations as well could do to reshape our food system to be more healthy and more sustainable. Listener texts, I tell people getting off meat, salt, and sugar takes between three months and two years. We still eat red meat and fish every 10 days, but I personally could easily say goodbye to these products. My girls do crave red meat, though. So there's a little advice from a listener about uh, how to go gradual. Um, and we're just about at time. There's so much more that we could talk about. I, I know you've written about President Biden's landmark climate legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, and that it included $20 billion for what they call climate smart farming. Um, we could give people more advice on making a transition. Um, you You wrote about how protein is usually actually not an issue, but Maybe B12, vitamin B12 is, but there are ways to compensate. But let me ask you about this as a closing, um, closing question. You, you've made the case that people should cut out meat from their diets as much as possible. But how should people think, in your opinion, about cheese and eggs? So say if someone is buying free-range organic eggs or cabbage cheese made by family farms in New York and Vermont regionally, is that impacting the climate significantly? Yeah, so it varies, you know, what factors you're looking at. So just um, maybe let's look at eggs first. So when just looking at emissions, eggs are a pretty low um, carbon food. At the same time, poultry production is a major source of, of water pollution. So there are trade-offs there. Um, when it comes to dairy, whether it's you know, whether dairy cows are raised on a conventional factory farm or 
on you know a more organic style farm they are still major uh, drivers of climate change. I mean, globally, just the dairy industry has a higher carbon footprint than the aviation industry. Um, so whether dairy is being sourced from, you know, say a smaller family-owned farm or from a large corporation, it's still going to have that high carbon footprint. And there we leave it for our climate story of the week for this week. Kenny Torella is a staff writer for Vox's Future Perfect section with a focus on animal welfare and the future of meat. He's also the author of the Vox newsletter, Meat Less or Meat Slash Less, which is designed to help readers incorporate more plant-based food into their diets with uh, specific tips and pieces of advice. So, Kenny, this has been great. We've ranged really wide here. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Brian.